Father, we are so grateful for your wonderful presence with us. We thank you for the wonderful joy of knowing Jesus tonight. We worship and adore you for all he's done for us. Father, we have so little that we can give back, but we ask that you will take the words of our mouths and find them acceptable in your sight, that you will take our lives and the things we do for you and find them acceptable in your sight. Father, tonight I commit us to you, Father, and I'm asking in Jesus' wonderful name that the Holy Spirit may be so present, Father, that his personality, his quickening life, may flow from every word that's spoken, every action done. Father, that we should just lift up you and lift up your Son, the Lord Jesus, and lift up the Holy Spirit tonight in our hearts and reverence them. Father, that we may take your word and love it and love to study it tonight. Father, I thank you. You have revealed so much to us. And Father, we're so grateful to you. And I pray, Father, tonight may be such a blessing to many, many people. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, you will remember that we dealt in some detail with the baptism of fire. And we saw, I hope clearly, that although there were parallels between what happened in in the early church when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire rested upon them, though there are parallels between that and what's going to happen in the kingdom, the major event which we are describing when we refer to the baptism of fire is actually the judgment which will take place at the second advent of Christ when he will separate the believers from the unbelievers. Now that's what we mean by the baptism of fire. And tonight, eventually, we are going to get on to one of the parables that describe the baptism of fire, the parable of the ten virgins. That's where we're heading tonight. Now, um, eventually, eventually, you should have a very clear understanding of that particular parable. Because we're going to go right through the details. We've got a bit more background to do. But if you've understood last week, that is the majority of the background. Now remember, when Jesus comes again, second advent, he will whistle, as the Bible says, or hiss actually, the Old Testament says, for all the Jews all over the world. And at the second advent of Christ, they're all going to be gathered into the land of Israel. And there, he will judge them face to face. The baptism of fire is when the believers are separated from the unbelievers and when the unbelievers are then removed from the earth. But we're going to talk about a parable. So let's understand what we mean by a parable before we begin, shall we? So a parable. Now the word parable itself comes from two Greek words. The first one, para, P-A-R-A, which means by the side of, or alongside. And from another Greek word, which is the word balo, which means to throw down, or to throw. So that the word parable is these two words combined, and it means to throw down something, or to throw something alongside something else. You take one thing, and you lay it along another thing. A parable. The thing that's thrown alongside something else, in our case, is there is a point of truth and a story to illustrate the truth. So you say your point of truth, you then take your story, 
and you throw it down by the side of the point of truth. And it's used to demonstrate the point of truth. Alright? Now, they're the two things that are thrown side by side. I would imagine that every public speaker uses parables at times or uses stories to demonstrate what he's actually getting at. I've used um, quite a number in the course already. Let me refresh your memory over one parable that I used. When we were talking about eternal life, and we were talking about the eternal security of a believer, I used a parable then. Do you remember that I said that once you were born again, you became the Father in Heaven's child? And that meant that you could never lose that relationship. And the parable I gave was, well, imagine yourself. You were the parable. You are your father's son. And it doesn't matter what you do. You change your name. I'm sure you remember this. You change everything about yourself. You have plastic surgery so that you look different. You change the color of your hair. Uh, you change your nationality. You can do everything. But it doesn't interrupt the basic relationship underneath. You are your father's son, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, there was the point that I was making, that once you were your heavenly father's child, it couldn't be broken. There's the parable that I laid by the side. So I threw that story down alongside to demonstrate the point. Watchman Nee gives another parable when he's talking about that marvelous phrase, in Adam all die. And you remember what he says. He said, imagine that your grandfather died before he, he had children. Well, if he died, say, uh, 50 years ago, before he had managed to get married and actually have children, you would have died in your grandfather, because you wouldn't have been born today because of his death right back there. Now, the point he was demonstrating, of course, was that because Adam sinned, because he fell away from God, because he disobeyed God's commandments, that actually he died spiritually. And in him, you died spiritually too. Now, there's the point of truth. The first thing that I went over was the story which was laid down by the side. The parable was laid down by the side of the point to demonstrate the point. And Jesus used parables a great deal. Um, of course, the problem is when you've got a parable, you've got to make sure you get the right story by the right point. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. Right? And actually, there are two equal and opposite problems when we come to this. First of all, you take the parable and you think you understand that, so you change your truth to fit in with the parable. That's the first problem. The second problem is, there's your truth. You apply the wrong parable to it, and so you have to squash and push and crush the parable to get it forced into the point that you're trying to demonstrate. And they're two equal and opposite errors. Now, Jesus was the best teacher that this world has ever seen. His parables were always used clearly to demonstrate a point. Now, if I, for example, made a particular point, let's say, uh, let's go back to the eternal security and the relationship of us to our Father in Heaven. If I was actually making that point, and then I used Watchman Nee's parable about dying in your grandfather, you would immediately say, now hold on, I understand the point, but what's the point of the parable? That parable doesn't seem to fit in 
with the point that you just made. I thought you were talking about eternal security. What's it got to do with my grandfather dying? And immediately then, you can see that the point you're making and the parable you're laying alongside have nothing to do with one another. Unfortunately, when we come to the Bible, people often forget the context, forget what Jesus was talking about, they just take the parable out of context, they take the point they want to demonstrate, which comes from somewhere else, and they lay those two things alongside. And there you've got your problems, you see. Sometimes it doesn't matter. We saw actually a parable last week where it really didn't matter. Um, you remember we saw two women in a field. One was taken, the other was left. And we saw how that applied at the second advent to the baptism of fire. That the unbelievers were removed and the believers stayed on the earth. Now some people apply that parable to the rapture of the church. Well that's alright. It doesn't do any damage, you see. It doesn't do any damage at all. So that's alright. If you apply that parable, then the one that's taken is actually the believer rather than the unbeliever. We saw it in context and we saw that actually Jesus was referring to the second advent. The parable of the ten virgins must be the most mutilated of all the parables. It really must. That has caused more people problems than any other parable. In fact, I don't know many people who haven't at one time or other wanted to minister on the parable of the ten virgins. <coughs> and who actually have then chickened out at the last moment. We've even had meetings that I can remember where someone has actually said, let's turn to Matthew 25. And they read it through, and they take out the point they're trying to make, but they normally then say, well, I don't understand the rest, but that was the point that the Lord gave me. You see? Now, that's all right. At least that's being honest about it. One particular Bible teacher who actually has a following of thousands in the United States of America, he actually says about this parable, the parable of the ten virgins, ah, with this parable, he says, the details don't matter. The only point that Christ was trying to make was that we've got to be alert. He just picked a normal wedding that was going on at the time, and the details really don't matter. Well, I'd accept that as perfectly all right, except that with other parables, he spent hours and hours and hours going through in meticulous detail every part of the parable to demonstrate the point that he's actually giving. And it seems to me that all the parables that Jesus gave were so wonderful that every line of them have got a meaning just for us. You see? Now that's the truth. The parable of the ten virgins, just very quickly, before we come on to it, you probably know what it is. There are five foolish virgins that have no oil, and there are five wise virgins. That has been used, probably, uh, to support nine unbiblical theories about salvation, about the second coming, about all sorts <coughs> of things. Let me just tell you one thing that it's been used to support. Uh, people using that parable and taking it out of context have actually said that that proves conclusively that unless you're filled with the Spirit, you're not saved. And you see their reasoning. They say, well, a virgin is a believer. The foolish ones don't have the filling of the Spirit. The wise ones do have the filling of the Spirit. So only the wise ones are saved. Now, that's anti-biblical. As soon as you uh, face it up to other passages in the Word of God, you know that it's just not on. It doesn't add up, you see. 
But they take the parable and using that as their basis for doctrine, they then go on into the, these errors and they do a great deal of damage. The one thing we must always do when we're talking about parables is to make sure that we get the context right. The context is terribly important because Jesus did not suddenly interrupt his chain of thought and put in a story that didn't have much meaning for what he was saying. It was always a development. He would state his case, he'd develop his case, then he'd give a parable to demonstrate the case. All right? Now that's what a parable is. It's something thrown down along something else. When we are dealing with parables, we have to make sure we've got the right point that it's actually trying to demonstrate. Now there we are. Now that's what we actually mean by a parable. So the ten virgins and the story of the ten virgins has got to be taken and it's got to be thrown alongside the point that we're trying to demonstrate. And we'll see what that point is a little later on. The second point of background that we need before we actually get onto the parable. We've got to understand this, that many pictures are given of Christ and his church. Wonderful pictures. Every picture given of Christ and his church demonstrates a particular facet of the marvellous relationship we are in with the Lord. Let me just give you a few of these pictures that are so glorious. You know most of them, of course. First of all, let's take this one. Christ is the vine. Well, what's the church? Well, the members of the church are the branches of that vine. Now, that's a wonderful picture of Christ and the church. Another one, and I'm going to give six, he's the shepherd. Well, who are the church then? Well, the church are the sheep. These are parables, actually. They're little pictures that are laid down alongside his relationship with the church to demonstrate something. The, the last one, of course, shows that the church um, really needs a shepherd to guide it, to look after it, to comfort it. And each one of these pictures, these stories, these parables, show us so much more clearly the wonderful relationship that we have. Let's take another one. He's the high priest. We're the priests. That's a relationship that we've got. Another one. He's the last Adam. We, we're the new creation. There we are. Now it's beautiful. Uh, another one. He's head of the body. And we're the body. All of those show this marvellous relationship and different facets of that relationship of the Lord and his church. But all those apply to now. It is true now that he's the vine and we're the branches. It is true now he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. It is true now that he's the high priest, we are the priests. It, all of them are true now. But there's a marvellous relationship which is true in the future. In the future. And that is the picture of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. At the moment, Christ is wooing the church. We're still here down on this earth, and Christ is wooing the church. <coughs> you know the marvellous pictures that are presented. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, for example, Paul actually talks about the church, and he says, I want to present you as a chaste bride to Christ. A chaste virginal bride to Christ. Because he is such a marvellous bridegroom, that's what I want you to be like in your re love relationship with him. 
we've got this beautiful passage that, that is used at most uh, marriage services today of Ephesians chapter 5, where we get two pictures. We get the picture of the head and the body, and we also get the picture of the lover of the church. This marvellous picture of Christ who's coming. He's in love with the church. He's given himself for the church. And there's going to be a wonderful husband and wife relationship between them. Now there's the picture that we've got. And the point we've got to fully understand <clears throat> is that Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. What a wonderful <clears throat> relationship that is. And that's future at the moment, it is not true. At the moment, we have just the engagement <coughs> ring of the Holy Spirit. The word earnest, actually, you know, it says that we have the earnest of the Spirit. comes from exactly the same Greek word for an engagement ring. It's exactly the same Greek word. And at the moment, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and he's the engagement ring. You are engaged to Christ. Well, when does the bride and bridegroom come then? Well, on the wedding day, that's when it comes. Yes, every person in this room, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got a wedding coming up. Even if you're married, you have a wedding actually coming up. And it's going to be the wedding of the universe. It really will. There won't have been a wedding like this. <coughs> when does this actually take place, this wedding? Well, let's see it first. Then we'll turn to the scriptures on it. We've got here the rapture of the church occurring. Remember that at that point, all the believers who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and who constitute the body of Christ are raptured, taken up, away from the earth, and they go to heaven. On the earth then, you've got seven years of tribulation. But what's happening in heaven? Well, it's wedding day in heaven. As soon as the bride gets up there, Rewards are given out. We've seen this, this before in another Bible study. Rewards are given out. And the bride is decked with beauty. Fine righteousness. Wonderful gold crowns. Rings. These are all rewards that have been given because of your activity in the Holy Spirit when down on this earth. And there's maybe tribulation on the earth. There's a wedding up here in heaven. Let's have a look at it. In Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, we get the picture of it. It takes place before the second advent of Christ. In fact, when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth, he's a married man and he comes back with his bride. He comes back with all of his church in glory with him, almost to show her off down below on the earth. Now there's the picture. And here it is. Uh, I think we'll begin verse 6. Revelation 19 and verse 6. And this is John speaking. He really had a field day on this wonderful occasion when the Holy Spirit revealed to him the things that were to come. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In the chapter before, we've just come to the end of the description of the um, terrible time that the earth is having, the tribulation. 
chapter 19 deals with the second advent. And so here we see God omnipotent reigning. And he's about to come back to the earth to take the earth. We'll see that later on. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. Oh, it's glorious. Hallelujah. There are so many talks about how Christ is going to prepare his church. And so Christ is preparing his church. But the glory is that in heaven the church has made herself ready. Yes, wonderful. And we have the marvellous privilege of deciding what type of wedding dress the church is going to have on. We have the choice. If we move in the spirit and live in the spirit, it will be a glorious time. If we do not, it will be burnt up. Right? The Lord Jesus does not want a bride dressed in straw. He's going to burn it up. It's only the best that is actually going to come through. And the wife has made herself ready. Oh, it's a wonderful truth. Hallelujah. Going to make ourselves ready. That's why it is right to be fervent for the Lord here on this earth. Long after the earth has passed away. You are going to be arrayed in the wonderful clothes you've made for yourself by his grace. By moving in the spirit, you will get rewards for what you are doing. And what is it for? It's for him. The bride spends hours preparing herself, not to show off, but for her bridegroom. Because she loves him so much. And there's part of the picture. That's why we are spending time... Asking God to deal with our lives. We are asking the Holy Spirit to come and take control of our lives. What for? That we might be the best dressed bride for our wonderful Saviour. Hallelujah. That's right. That's the purpose of it all. And here she's made herself ready. And we carry on. Verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And verse 9 is very important. And he said, this is the angel speaking, he said unto me, write, write this down. I want you to get this down, he says. There's an important bit of truth coming up. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper is the reception. Blessed are the guests who are called to my marriage feast. That's what he's saying. Oh, the bride's going to be blessed. But the guests are going to be blessed as well. We're going to see who the guests are a little later on. Marvellous story. All right, let's not delay. Let's go straight on to Matthew 25, shall we? Remember, the bride of Christ is the church. And before I say anything on this, in the authorised version, the King James, there is one slight error in translation. If you've got an RSV with you, if you've got a revised version with you, if you've got any of the modern versions, Moffat, Young's Literal, you don't have to change anything. They've got it right. In fact, the authorised version is the only one that's got it wrong. And it's a very small mistake, but it makes all the difference. And it's found, actually, in verse 11. In verse 11. We'll go through this verse in just a moment. I beg your pardon. Verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Looks good, but it's not the marriage. It's the marriage feast. 
This is not the marriage taking place. The marriage has already taken place. This is the reception. It's marriage feast. Would you check it when you get home in the modern versions? You'll find they've got <coughs> marriage feast there instead of marriage. It's crucial. The marriage takes place in heaven. The reception takes place back on the earth. All right. Now, that's the only slight mistranslation of the passage. Uh, with that done, we're ready to go. Remember what I said. With parables, it's essential to see the context. So let's see the context in which Jesus was talking. And for that, we have to turn back to the beginning of Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> now verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. He just spent two chapters talking in the temple. Alright, he'd been there quite some time. And he slammed the religious people. He slammed the Judaistic religionists. That was the temple discourse. He was talking to them and he wanted them to see that religion doesn't get you anywhere. Only salvation gets you anywhere, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally he leaves the temple. And he actually heads out then, in verse 3, to the Mount of Olives. And what follows in chapter 24 and 25 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And here's Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and he's talking to the disciples. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? When's the temple going to be thrown down, Jesus? When's it going to be crushed to the ground? And what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world, or the end of the age? What's going to be the sign of it? Now that begins the Olivet Discourse. And the context, therefore, is a description of what is going to occur before the end comes. Before the second advent actually comes. And he goes through. You will hear rumours of wars. Kingdom shall rise against king, uh, kingdom. There will be earthquakes. There will be famine in diverse places. All over the place. These, he says, are just the beginning of the sorrows. If you go to verse 15, without going through this in detail, you actually there have a reference to the temple. And it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now Daniel's clear on this. Daniel is very clear. He says that that statue, which here is called the abomination of desolations, is set up in the temple halfway through the tribulation. So he's talking and giving a description of the tribulation right here. Okay? And all of this are, is actually a description of the things that are going to occur in the seven-year period up to the second advent of the Lord Jesus. Then, uh, just later on in Matthew 24, in verse 29, we have the second advent itself. If you read it through yourselves, you'll see that this is all tribulational, that this uh, is all second advent. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the star shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. 
There it is. Now what's that? That's second advent. He's not talking about the rapture of the church. The context is second advent. He then goes on and describes how a trumpet will blast and all the Jews and all the believers will be gathered together from the four ends of the earth. Okay? Fine. Then you come right through and he gives a parable and he gives parables in Matthew 24 to describe what he's talking about. Then he comes to Matthew 25. And remember, in the original scriptures there are no chapter divisions. Okay, no chap. He, it's one talk. It's all the Olivet Discourse. Even after he's talked about the ten virgins, he goes back to the second coming. Just as if to emphasize, I'm talking about the second coming. Uh, you see that in Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from the other as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. That's the baptism of fire. Alright, there is that division. So the whole context through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is the second advent of Christ. Well, what's the parable about then? Well, it's not about the church. The church has already been taken seven years before. And if you start applying it to the church, we're in trouble. And that's why people have had so much trouble trying to interpret this particular parable. They have thrown it alongside the wrong thing. Because they've taken it out of context. Now that's the context, and I think that's uh, really quite clear. The, um, okay, let's just take that verse again that we saw, Matthew 25, verse 10. And I made this point that this, the bridegroom was not coming to the wedding. He was coming from the wedding to go to the reception. The same thing's talked about in Luke 12, and there it's very clear. So would you turn, please, to Luke chapter 12, keep your finger in the place, and beginning verse 35, Luke chapter 12, 35, and onwards. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Now, they used to wear very long robes, of course, in those days. And he says, make sure you've got a, a girdle around your waist so that when you've got a job to do and when you've got to run, you can lift up your long garments and tuck it into your belt so that it doesn't get in your way. Let your loins be girded. Your light's burning. Make sure your testimony is burning clearly. And ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. There it is. Returning from the wedding. Where's he coming to? He's coming to the marriage feast. That's Luke 12, verse 36. Actually coming to the wedding feast. So Matthew 25 is dealing with the bridegroom, with the bride, returning for the reception. And it's second advent. So far, so good. Next, we have a word mentioned in verse 1. The word virgin. The word virgin. So we've got to understand what the virgin actually is. I don't blame people for trying to apply this to the church. In the Old Testament, the kings used to have harems um, in their palaces. 
And most people today really don't understand too much about harems, but actually there's a lot written on the harems of the ancient world. And there were not just one group of women, as most of us think there were in the harems. There were actually three groups of women. Three groups. First of all, there were who were called the queens. And the queens were the ones who were actually married to the king. All right? Now, they had a special relationship with the king. The second group were the concubines. And here's the third group. They were called the virgins. The virgins of the harem. And the virgins, their only job was to wait on the queens. They were the ones who used to dress the queen. They used to bathe her. They used to make sure her hair was combed. They used to make sure all the dresses that she needed were out, ready for her to wear. These three groups of women, the virgins, were the ones who did nothing but wait on the queen. They were actually the friends of the queen. And she chose which virgin she wanted. Their only responsibility to, was to wait on her. Uh, in Song of Solomon, the daughters of Jerusalem are the virgins of the harem. All right? They were there to wait on the queens. And, of course, they, they have to try and convince the Shunammite woman that really Solomon's quite a good person. Why don't you... He's, he's super chap. We all love him. So why don't you? That's what they're saying. Actually, a lot of that goes on today. Oh, we think he's great. Yes, go out with him. And the Shunammite woman, being a very wise woman, she didn't want anything to do with it. I don't love him. That's what actually she was saying. She'd already fallen in love with her shepherd lover, as you know. But that's another story. The virgins, nevertheless, were the ones who waited on the queen. And the virgins here are not the bride. They're the ones who are going to wait on the bride. We'll see who they are. Fine. Next point of introduction. We've got a wedding. And as soon as we think of a wedding, we immediately think of one of our weddings. Or we think of a Jewish wedding, and both are incorrect. We have got to see what type of weddings they actually had in Jesus' day. Not the type of Jewish wedding that's held now. That's got nothing to do with it. What was the wedding like which was held in the time of Jesus? That's the question. Now, for example, in our day, it's actually the father that gives away his daughter. The father presents his daughter to the bridegroom. Certainly that's not true scripturally. For no man cometh unto the father but by the son. Actually, it's a different relationship with us. Actually, just from scripture, it's obvious that it's the son that presents the bride to the father. It's entirely different. So to apply what is, goes on today actually leads into a, a great confusion of thought. So let me describe to you, and this makes all the difference when we come onto the parable, what a wedding was like in the ancient world. All right? First of all, it was arranged by the parents. That's the first thing. The parents decided who was going to marry whom. And if they liked the choice, that was fine. <clears throat> And actually the bride and the groom were never allowed alone together. They could see one another, but they always needed someone else with them until the marriage day actually came. And they used to set a particular day for the marriage. Now the bride used to live with her parents, and she stayed in with her parents. <coughs> On the evening, 
that the wedding was going to take place, the bride used to hire a carriage or a chariot, and he used to leave his home, travel through the streets in his chariot, and it used to be quite a glorious one as well, and he used to arrive at the home of his bride. Inside, she was already, you know, she'd uh, begun to get herself ready for him. He would then knock on the door, and they would say their goodbyes. And finally, the bride would then get into the carriage, and they'd drive off, and that was the marriage ceremony. That was all there was to it. There were no vows said or anything. This, of course, relates up with Adam and Eve. You remember that the words that the Lord said to Adam and Eve were, let a man leave his father and his mother. And the wedding ceremony at the time of Jesus actually was simply a matter of leaving your parents. The bride was taken away from her, her parents. Never happened before. She had lived in the protection of her parents up to that time. <clears throat> So the, the bridegroom used to arrive in the, the carriage, or in the chariot, knock on the door, and wait. And then the bride used to come out, wave goodbye, and off they went. And from that time forth, they were man and wife. That was it. It had all been arranged, and there was the marriage ceremony. That's not the end of it, however. They then went along, drove to the bridegroom's house, where the reception was going to be held. All right? And they had a format for the reception there as well. What they used to do was this. All the friends of the bridegroom used to be inside the house. And they used to close the door. And they used to prepare the inside. All the friends of the bride used to stay outside the house. It was all arranged and it was quite beautiful. Well, sometimes the bride and groom had to come miles and miles and miles to actually get to the bridegroom's house. And they used to put a, a lookout to watch the road. And it was about midnight, they used to actually, this all used to occur after the evening star had got up, you see, so it used to be late into the night. And the lookout used to see, in the distance, perhaps a torch burning on the chariot. And he would immediately call back to the friends of the bride who were outside the house, he's coming, here he is, quick, hurry up. And they used to form two lines from the door out to where the chariot was formed, so that the bride and groom could walk down between them and into the wedding feast. And as it was dark, well, you've guessed the rest. Sometimes they used to have lamps. And when the bridegroom actually came, they used to light the lamps. They didn't used to do it before he came. They used to do it when he came. And so they used to hold it up, and here were these two lines of lights. And the bride and groom used to proceed down the middle of them, actually into the bridegroom's house. Okay? And the door was then shut after the friends of the bride had come in as well. And a big party and reception was held, and that was the wedding feast. Now there's our wedding. The actual ceremony is simply the taking away of the bride from her parents. The reception was uh, this rather intricate ceremony with the friends of the bridegroom inside the house, the friends of the bride outside the house. Now, all the people that Jesus was talking to would have understood that as clear as a bell. They probably, most of them were married. They knew exactly what he was describing when we get to this parable. Okay? Now, we've got it, then. And I think we're almost ready to begin the parable of the ten virgins. Before we do, let's just identify the characters that we've got involved. All right? There are four groups. Two are mentioned... Two are not mentioned in this, but they're, they're all actually there. 
The first one is the bridegroom. Who's he? The Lord Jesus. So the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus. The second person who isn't mentioned except by implication is the bride. Who's that? That's the church. And the church comes with the bridegroom. The third group are the virgins or the friends of the bride. Now, who do they apply to? Well, it's interesting. In, don't turn to it, but in Revelation chapter 14, 1 to 4, we have a description of some of the Jews who are, are alive during the tribulation. And they're described as virgins. So that the friends of the bride are those people who are alive during the tribulation and who are expecting the Lord to come. All right? The friends of the bride are those alive in the tribulation. Who are the friends of the bridegroom? Well, they're already in the house. Who are they? They're all the people who are believers in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament believers and all the people who've died in the tribulation. There we are, and they're ready. They're going to be there. Of course they are. We'll see that next time when we talk about the great white throne. They're all there. Now you see, we haven't had to fiddle anything. It's just beautiful. And it all fits in perfectly. Now there's our parable. I'm, we're, I'm, we're still going to read it through, praise God. And we'll get a few details as we go through. Right, now we are now ready. Now look, <clears throat> this is a very complex parable. That's the reason we've had to do this background. If I had not laboured over the background, you wouldn't have understood this. So many people, they want the glory from the word of God. They're not prepared to study. They're not, not prepared to sit and listen to actually receive the background. You cannot talk about the deep things of Scripture unless you understand the background. We are now ready to begin the parable. Praise God. And it's pretty good. It's only taken us an hour and a half or so, including last week. Verse 20, uh, chapter 25, beginning verse 1. Then. Now what does then mean? Then means at that time. And it's not a separate chapter to chapter 24. He's just been talking about the coming of the Son of Man. He's just been talking about the second advent. And he says, then, at that time, shall, future tense, shall, not is, shall, in the future, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins. Now when you see this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it's a description of the kingdom of believers. The kingdom actually to be established on the earth. And it not only describes the nature of the kingdom, but it tells you a bit of the history. It tells you some of the things that it's going to go to. And it says, at the second advent, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like ten virgins. Okay? Well, he goes on. Which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom's coming with the bride, and they took their lamps and they went forth to meet him. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, this actually is specifically talking about... The Jews here, who are expecting the Messiah to come back, but who are not saved. You see, the Holy Spirit is the oil in this case. 
five of the virgins are regenerate. They're looking for Jesus to come again. They're born again. They've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They've believed that he's taken their sins and died for them. And they've got the oil for their lamps. The other ones, the five foolish ones, they're very religious. They're expecting the Messiah back. They've been working busily for the Messiah to show him just how good they are. They're extremely Judaistic. They are Orthodox Jews, Messianic Jews. But they've never stopped, actually, to ask the Lord into their hearts, as we would say. They've never actually been born again. We have them today, by the way. We have theologians today who would spend all their days talking about the Bible, talking about Jesus, talking about the disciples, talking about theology. But they're not born again. Not at all. And yet we have other people who are born again, who also spend their day talking about theology and talking about Jesus. No wonder the world is confused. Jesus described it like this. He said, it's a mustard tree. And you put a mustard seed in, it grows big, and the birds of the air come and settle in the branches. So that soon you can't tell what's the mustard tree and what are the birds of the air. And so the church today is rather like that. You've got the mustard tree, the real thing, but there are birds in the air perching in the branches saying, oh yes, I'm part of this tree, but they're not. And the phrase birds of the air is always used of something evil in the Bible. You see? Now here, you've got two people who are, two groups of people who are both expecting the Messiah to come. One are born again. The others think that by their own works and by their religion and how great they are, that they're actually going to be able to face the Messiah when he comes. And they're in for a shock, as we shall see later on. Uh, notice verse 4. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now you've got a lamp here and you've got a vessel with oil in it. And just before the bridegroom came, they used to pour the oil into their lamps and light up. And the foolish ones have just got their lamps. Oh, we don't need the Holy Spirit. We've been living perfectly good lives. Yes, and the lamp represents a testimony. They've all got a testimony. I've lived a great life. I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. Why do I need the Holy Spirit? I can do it all. And that's what the five foolish virgins are actually saying. Verse 5. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now sometimes uh, the bride and bridegroom were delayed. Here there's been a delay. Here it is, seven years tribulation. It's been a delay. They were expecting him here. But he had the wedding to go to, first of all. There's been an absolute delay. And what's happened? They've all fallen asleep. And the word uh, slumbered and slept, it's uh, a continuous tense. They kept on dozing and nodding off. Oh! That is a major scourge of the body of Christ. And it's true of the church as well as these people here who are tribulational saints. Do you remember the day you were first saved? How thrilled you were? The message of the gospel burned in your heart. You just had to get it out to everyone. What now? Hmm? What now? We tend to go to sleep. And Satan is the best anesthetic out. He tries to put us to sleep. He tries to, take the, to, to actually curb our enthusiasm and our zeal. That's what he's, he tries to do. Do you remember the day that you were first filled with the Holy Spirit? 
Oh, glorious, how wonderful it was. Well, what about now? Oh, well, well, um, yes. It's slumbering and it's sleeping. Do you remember the thrill of first coming to the fellowship and having free fellowship with people? Oh, how Satan comes and messes that in that up, doesn't it? It's not long before you start seeing only the faults, seeing all the problems, you know? At first you couldn't see any of the problems for the glory. You see, what's happened? Satan has put everyone to sleep as far as the glory is concerned. Oh, he never puts you to sleep as far as the problems are concerned. Always criticism, always seeing the fault. Oh, that God would allow us to be woken up by the Holy Spirit. What about the teaching of the Word of God? Did you spend years trying to understand the Word of God and came nowhere near it? Did you? Do you remember the first time that you heard someone speak and the Word of God just seemed to come alive and you understood it for the first time? Oh, and the thrill, how glorious. Now, oh, I'm too tired to go to the Bible studies. Or, I am busy tonight, or whatever it is. Of course, I'm talking to the converted tonight, aren't I? <laughs> Obviously here. It's true of us all. And it's true of these people. When the rapture of the church occurred, they were thrilled. You see, they said, well, the church is gone. So that means the Messiah is coming. And they must have read Matthew 24. They will read Matthew 24. They'll read Daniel. They'll read the prophets. They'll be marvel, marvelously thrilled by what they find. And they're really going to be expecting him for about six months. <laughs> and they gradually start falling asleep. In fact, the only ones who remain fervent are the 144,000 evangelists. You know, and they do remain fervent. They slumbered and they slept. They're expecting the Messiah to come, but the reality seems to have actually gone from them. That's what he's saying here. And it's a warning to them, don't let this happen. That's what he's saying. Don't let this happen. Verse 6. And at midnight there was a cry made. Now the scout seen something. He's heard a noise. He's heard the rumbling. This is it. The bridegroom's coming. A cry goes forth. A midnight cry. Behold the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. You virgins, get yourself ready. Light your lamps. Come on. It's nearly time. As we would say, oh, is everything ready for the reception? Is it all ready? Go ye out to meet him. Verse 7. So they all get up now. The born again get up. They know Jesus is coming. The religious ones get up. And they think, great, now he'll see how good we are. Isn't it super that he's coming? They're trusting their own works. Verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. To trim one's lamp means to prepare it for lighting. So they got it ready. They cut the top off the wick. And they actually lit up. Remember, Jesus is coming. He's appearing now at this point. And the problem is, the moment Jesus starts appearing, it's the end of grace. There is no second chance when Jesus starts coming. And just as he appears, the foolish realize that their religion means absolutely nothing. That compared to the glory of Christ... They haven't got the goods. They are not born again. Their good works, they suddenly realize, are just filthy rags. And they add up to absolute nothingness. And they start panicking. And here's their panic. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
or are gone out. It's actually going out. For our lamps are going out. Now compare the two lamps. The one with the oil in is burning with a clear flame, giving a wonderful light. The others, they've lit the wick. It's glowing and it's smouldering and causing a lot of smell and a lot of smoke. And that's the difference between born-again people and religious people. The religious people have a faint glimmer at times, but actually they confuse the issue. It's like a smoke fog. They confuse the issue of the gospel. And here these people suddenly realize this flame is no good. No good for the bridegroom who's coming. I can hardly see it. How is he going to see it? You must give us some of your oil, they say. But it's too late. The bridegroom is coming. You cannot be born again now. You've had your chance and you've rejected it because of religion. So they turn now, not to God, to the believers. You give us some of your oil now. And what do the believers say? But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. What does that mean? You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. You cannot buy the glorious person of the Holy Spirit. There's only one way you can get the Holy Spirit, and that's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are they saying? You've trusted in your own works for all this time. Go on then. It's too late now. Go and buy some of this oil that you need so badly. You think your religion has worked? It will not work. You just try and buy some of this oil. Go and buy from them that sell. Alright? And buy for yourselves. It's no good. And that's a point of remark about their religion. To buy means you've got the goods. You've got the money. You can actually purchase it with what you've got. And that's religion. Okay? It's no good. And while they're out, and so what they do, there's this panic that begins. It's described in many passages of the Bible. There's a panic on. And the religious people hide their faces. They run. They asked for the mountains to fall on them. They realized they're not good enough. They're off in this panic. The bridegroom, meanwhile, comes. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready, that's the five wise virgins, that's the believers, alive at the second advent, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. They joined the Old Testament believers... And they have a celebration. He's back with his bride. And we're glad to see him. And that's the baptism of fire. The door shutting there is the baptism of fire. The believers are on one side. The unbelievers are now on the other. Alright? And that's taken in context. The believers who are alive at the second advent join in the marriage feast. That's what it meant in Revelation 19. Blessed are they that come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, how blessed. Blessed and holy they are. Yes, they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has set them apart. Now what happens? The unbelievers then come back. Afterwards came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now this immediately brings up that scripture. Um... Many came, saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons in thy name? Let me just explain this. At the moment, no one can say Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Alright? No one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If today someone truly says Jesus is Lord, it's because they are a born-again believer. But the scriptures are very clear. It says this. 
that when Jesus comes again, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every tongue. Not just believers, every single tongue. And at the judgment here described, everyone sees him as he is and they know he's Lord. They confess that he is Lord. That does not mean to say they're saved. And during the tribulation, the religious church has the greatest revival ever. If you think that the religious church is going to die, you are mistaken. It's coming in for its heyday. And during this time of tribulation, Satan does miracles among the people. Miracles are done. Fantastic things. They're described in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you'd like to read Read it for yourselves. Miracles are performed. And many of these unbelievers, these religious people who've worshipped the beast, who've actually joined with the false prophet, they've been doing miracles all over the place. Satan's been allowing them to do miracles. And they think that on the basis of their works, they will actually get to heaven. And what does he say? Depart from me, ye evildoers, I never knew you. You're religious people, you are not born of the Holy Spirit, you are not regenerate, you're trusting on your own good deeds, and they're not good enough. And here, Lord, Lord, open to us, every tongue confessing him Lord. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. What knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit that's within him? Who knoweth God except the Holy Spirit? No one. Here, none of Jesus had been given to these people. The Holy Spirit had not revealed Jesus to them. They were not born again. Depart from me, I never knew you. I never have and I never will know you. It's too late. And that's the baptism of fire. The five wise are the believers. The five foolish are the unbelievers. Verse 13. Watch therefore... For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Do you remember that we saw last week that he, we studied in Matthew 24, of that day and hour knoweth no man, the second advent. Alright? And the purpose of this whole parable, the major purpose, is to tell the believers in the tribulation, you've got to keep ready, because he's coming any time. Don't slumber and sleep. Wake up. And the message, I've summarized it. A lack of foresight is inexcusable. A lack of reality over what's going to happen has no excuse whatsoever. Neglect, he says to these unbelievers, is going to cost you very dear when it's too late. Don't neglect it. They will actually read this parable and they'll understand it, by the way, in the tribulation. It's going to be a major help. Ignorance of the exact time of his coming is no excuse. Do not fall asleep. In fact, may ignorance of the exact time when he comes again be the main thing that spurs us on to remaining on fire all the time, not going to sleep. We don't know when the rapture's going to occur. All right? They don't know when the second advent's going to occur. The principle is the same. Just because you don't know when they're going to happen, don't use it as an excuse to switch off, become worldly and go to sleep. Don't do it. Keep yourself for Christ. Keep yourself for him. Serve him. Love him. Be on fire for him. To use a, a well-coined phrase, we should live today 
before the rapture, and the rapture may be tomorrow, maybe in a year's time, maybe in two years' time, five years' time, whatever time it is, we should live today as if Christ died yesterday, as if he rose today, and as if he's coming tomorrow. That's the key for us all. This has application to believers at the second advent. It's got a message for us. The world needs you to be fervent. The world needs you to be on fire for Christ. Let's make sure as believers that we learn the parable of the ten virgins. You're already born again. Well, wake up. He's coming for you very soon. The world needs him. May God bless that. Amen.